We want better schools. We want them now. Stand in our way, and you'll catch these eight black hands with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecky, and Stewart. Join us now for an hour or more of talk on education and culture. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Eight Black Hands Experience. Why are you talking in that voice? <laughs> afternoon, everybody. It's Why are you doing that? It's the Barry White voice. It's the Quiet Storm podcast. <laughs> so, Nakima, you want to talk to us a little bit more to inform the people about uh, what Cruz Guzman lawsuit? Sure. Well, welcome to Eight Black Hands once again. Can we give them another round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know you got, you're supposed to introduce us, host. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, we can do it on afterwards. Go ahead. So I, I'll, I'll just briefly uh, speak about the Cruz Guzman case. And so you all heard from Dr. Charvez Russell earlier. Um, his school, Friendship Academy for the Arts, is one of three charter school defendant interveners in the case. So that's a fancy way of saying that a lawsuit was filed uh, three or four years ago. Um, in the state of Minnesota, alleging that the state is not meeting its requirement of having an educational system that is adequate under our state constitution. And so the lawsuit was filed on behalf of several parents of color. And one of the main things that's being alleged in the lawsuit is that a racially segregated environment is inherently inadequate. And of course, um, as um, again, an African-American mother, as a civil rights attorney, I take issue with that. Number one, that a school like Friendship Academy for the Arts would be considered segregated as opposed to culturally affirming. I see a school like Friendship um, as being akin to HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities that are specifically designed with the academic and social upliftment of African Americans in mind. And so that is the type of model that Friendship Academy has. Also similar, one of our clients is um, Higher Ground Academy for the Arts, as well as um, Paladin. And so we intervened um, as attorneys on behalf of three charter schools, those three charter schools, in order to ensure that the rights of students of color and particularly students who attend charter schools are protected and the uh, ch uh, choice and autonomy of black parents and other parents of color are protected as well because we don't know what's gonna happen as far as this lawsuit is concerned. Um, we are in mediation right now, which we've been for several months. And if we are unable to resolve this case, then we will go to trial in January of 2021. Um, at the core of this issue, again, has to do with the way that other people are attempting to define what's in the best interest of black children and other children of color. And we are saying, absolutely not. You don't get to label what's happening in our communities. You don't get to label our children. And you don't get to decide what is most important for our progress as African-Americans and other people of color. So that's why I'm involved as uh, one of the attorneys in the case, and I'm really proud to be representing Friendship because um, they are doing some amazing work. We, we, we're just going to keep you up here for the whole time. We're going to kidnap you. Hmm? You're going to be a part of the show for the whole time. You can't say what you said and not and leave. What? Ten Ladies black and gentlemen, hands. ten black ten hands. Ten black hands. Let's go. Let's have it. All right. Every show it. we renegotiate. Absolutely. So, ten black so hands. So, we'll introduce the show though, because how many of y'all actually heard eight black hands before? So it's a lot of folks that haven't. So introduce the show host. So welcome to the Eight Black Hands podcast, and today we're going to talk about your state. And since the majority of the folks that are on this stage aren't from your state, we're going to give you some truth about what's happening in Minnesota. And so, one of the things that we're gonna talk about is white fragility. You guys don't need to be, a, be scared of the data. The data is the data. But what you take away from it and what you do with this data is gonna speak volumes about the white folks and the white power structure in Minnesota. Cool? Why are you looking at me? You the host. <laughs> you can't look at... See, if, if you're not used to the eight black hands, we do this still a lot. Voice. Like, he, he just made a statement, too, and didn't, like, give us no guidance. He didn't tell us what he was about to all talk right. about. Well, all right. So, so, 
National, <laughs> the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Anybody know what that is? So NAEP scores were just released, right? And Minnesota's not looking too good for black students and how you educate them. Currently, uh, you guys are ranked 49th in reading. The only state that is uh, ranked worse than Minnesota is the cheese whiz folks next door in Wisconsin. <laughs> In math, you guys are ranked. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah, you gotta say what that means, though. What that that, 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 that oh, means sorry. that Minnesota can't even be number one in racism. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what that means. Like yes. even number two in racism, right? Yes. That's what you were supposed to say. I'm like, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, man. Mm -hmm. So, ahead. but but you guys, they call this what? Uh, Mississippi. <laughs> I've heard folks say Mississippi. I called it that once. Okay. It didn't go over very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but. I would like to say some people were not fans of that uh, exactly. But they're doing better than you guys. That's probably why they weren't fans of it. <laughs> and the Jim Crow North is our other nickname. Jim Crow North. Oh, wow. Mm. So, so back to the data, uh, in math, you guys are ranked 46 in the country for how you educate black kids. Now, this is a wealthy state. Some people say money solves all of the educational woes of, of children. So why isn't, it, it, yeah, why isn't it playing out here? That proves that it doesn't. Hmm. I mean, I haven't jumped in as much yet because I'm waiting for the cat that lives here, like that's had to fight here and been on boards and all that stuff here. Like, what is it that you need us to know before we really go into this conversation? I mean, it's just good to have people from somewhere else because it's always nice to have outside eyes. I live here, so I have lived in this for a long time. But we are not a poor state. We are not a state that is without opportunities and without resources. Um, we think of ourselves as a very northern place. We do not think of ourselves as, as like a racist place. So the answers are hard to come by how the numbers look so bad like this all the time. Mm -hmm. I travel to a lot of cities where they would love to have Minneapolis's budget on everything. They would love to have Minneapolis's prosperity right. and wealth. We are one of the most Obama voting, whole food shopping, condo living, you know, hot yoga, goat yoga, listen, yoga. Ac listen, acro yoga. Today what? I heard about acro yoga acro. in Minnesota. Never heard of it. I don't even know what that what is. is. Acro it sounds acro painful, yoga. but whatever it is, <laughs> um, we have it, right? And, and I say this in city after city, but it's kind of painful in it being where I live. I go to a lot of places where I see the same thing over and over again. Condos, hot yoga, ginger-infused coffee, these amazing lifestyles that you are popular. ginger? Ginger, I don't even Nothing know. Nothing wrong with bro. ginger. Like Whiskey-infused coffees, you know. Th this, these fantastic lifestyles that are popping up. And everywhere that I go that I see that within the margins, uh, in the shadows of all of that, that, uh, that wealth and that glory are children who will never enjoy the cities that they live in, mm. in that lifestyle. Can, can black families afford to live in Minneapolis? And it's, it's a, you know, Minneapolis, like, you know, on the way here, I saw like eight groups of condos I've never seen before, mm -hmm. right? And, and I live here. And, 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 and those condos are, are, are what? Somebody help me out. Would those be $600,000, $700,000, dollars apartments, basically? Where a mile away, there are kids that will never enjoy that lifestyle. But here, unlike many other places, I don't see why we have as many excuses because we're not a poor city. We're not a poor place. We're not a place without... Um, it seems to come down to a belief gap and political will. Mm -hmm. Right, my friend Linnell, who I don't know if she's here tonight. She has said it. There she is. She used to come to school. Y'all can clap for Linnell. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Clap for, for Linnell. Linnell used to come to the school board meetings and say, if white boys and girls were failing at the rate of black boys and girls in this city, we would have fired everybody and changed the whole system already. Right. Mm -hmm. And I would take it a step further and say that if those kids were being failed in classrooms by middle-aged black women as their teachers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We for sure would have fired everybody Absolutely. and would have started from scratch. So I can't give you the answer of why it's this way. It's my home. I'm, I'm embedded in it. I love it here for many reasons. But this one thing is a conundrum I can't get out of. Mm -hmm. That's what's up. I'm, well, one, it, I totally agree with you around the idea that usually people 
are saying, you know what, I just need more money and then we could educate black kids. We just need more money. But the, the constricted mindset about black kids is what the starting point is. Because we have, when we talk about like integration, for example, I can point to many, many schools that have black children and they're in the basement, both literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. in the so-called integrated schools. Because the mindset is still constricted. It's the, it's the same thing. And I, I think people really don't, you know, it's, I think it's really, really hard for white people to kind of step out of their bodies for, for a minute and really understand the hostility that black children, three-year-olds, four-year-olds face. Because we want to kind of just wipe that out of our, our mental state and think that it doesn't happen. Let me tell you, a three-year-old, a four-year-old that gets told over and over and over again, you don't belong in this school. And then when they get to high school, you're wondering, you're so hostile. They got a right to be hostile. They've been persecuted since they were three. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just interesting. That was public enemy, by the way, but it's, you know, a, I mean, yeah, it's so, appropriate here. So I know a lot of y'all haven't heard of us before, and I hope that you listen after tonight. Maybe you won't, I don't know, but uh, I'm, fr- I'm from a black church, so y'all can like, we, we do it a little different there. Like, if you hear something you like, shout. If you hear something you don't like, shout. It don't matter. We like participation. You ain't got to be afraid, but I need a, uh, I got to. That's not going to happen tonight, just, you know. It ain't? No, no, it ain't. I'm, I'm, I'm giving y'all the benefit <laughs> of the doubt. That's I don't know. Happen. Is that just even with so prodding, know. it's not going to happen? Like, even with some prodding? Like, I'm no. giving y'all the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, Listen, no, so no, no, the point, no, you, so I saw, I saw the list that went up earlier. Can I just, I just want to, I'm asking y'all to have a little little bit of courage in the room. Raise your hand if you think integration is the key to actually fixing y'all's education issue here. Safe, well, wait, wait. Space, no, no, some hands got to no, no, no. Some hands got to go up because I saw. Yeah, when I people was, clicked the button. I saw I a lot it, of y'all felt I, that it was right. Yeah, I had a lot it of emailed to me. That dad has said that there are right. people in here that no, think that that's no. Yeah. I look. We looked at it scared. 15 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to know because this is this is the thing, right? 32 percent. 32 percent of your black kids can read in third grade. That's three out of ten. 25 percent of your eighth graders, black eighth graders, can do math. That number's going down. 67% of your black kids graduate, which actually don't mean much if once they get to college, they're remedial or even if they even get into college, right? So those numbers go down. So like, let's have a real conversation because segregation, what is segregation really? What do we mean when we say segregation, right? Because if that were the case, if segregation just meant one race and only one race and all that stuff, then y'all would be catching a lot of heat for your, your private schools and your magnet schools. But whereas white focus is not an issue, right? It's not an issue, right? What segregation means is them Negroes can't make decisions for themselves. So segregation, when it was an issue, what the reason why that was such a big thing is because black folks wanted access to the money and the resources that white people were getting. It didn't mean they wanted to go across town and be and have their whole teaching staff uprooted, to which we've never ever recovered from. Not uprooted. Y'all fire. are ninety something percent white folks teaching, right? And your union is a white woman's works program. So whoa, stop. Nah, I'm not. You had your chance. I'm not gonna folks. let you do this. I'm in not here. done. I'm just looking at the data. <laughs> The question is, though, right, but when you say... I, I literally think you're breaking the law in Minnesota right now. <laughs> so you know. Hey, so get, we're going to reconvene in Iowa. Get, 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 you know what? <laughs> hey, I'm not going so to Iowa. Guess who don't live here? So. <laughs> I can tell who don't uh, live here. So I just want to I can had, tell who ain't going to make it home. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All I'm saying is your biggest issue is not racial integration, right? It's, a lot, it's, it's what you think and don't think black folks are capable of doing. Right. So let's go really, really deep into it, right? So, so but, but wait, 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 wait. No, you can't finish. You, it, <laughs> because it's not, it's, not, it's not just about black folks. They're failing Hispanic I'm, folks, but, but I'm, I'm, so check this out. Let me, let me be very clear. Let me be very clear. Because when I talk about black people, it is not at the disparaging of anybody else. Right. But I get to love black folks and not have to apologize for right. it, right? And like we can have a conversation about black people. You can talk about whoever you want when you pull that microphone up. I'm talking about black folks. So back to what I was said. saying. Can, can I finish Republican Ray? Okay, thank you. So what I'm saying is, is that if we really believed in the power of black people, right? Black parents, the biggest 
thing that you have on your side is you are the experts of your kids. Do not give that power up. Like Nakima said earlier, if you want to choose an integrated school, then you get to choose that. But if you find a charter school that's working for you and your black kids and that's where you want to go to, when these people try to shut those down, they are saying, listen, Negro, stay back in your place and we need you to do what we're telling you to do. How is it that a system that moves so slow like the Titanic, can, when, it's, when it's some black people or some Hmong people or some Latino people making some changes, then y'all can pass the law and close some stuff down? Right. How does that happen? Absolutely. Well, it happens because people don't want to do the real work of addressing white supremacy. Mm-hmm. They literally think that integrated schools solves white supremacy. Integrated schools just moves white supremacy into a different school. That's what that means. So like, and I, how many people have heard of Kwanzaa here? I don't usually have to ask this, but you know, okay. Black folks, put your hands down. I know you heard. Well, <laughs> I'm not, we in Minnesota. Uh, oh, that's right. Know. Y'all Minnesota black folks. That's an appropriate question. My bad, my bad. <laughs> so my, my favorite, you know, my, my literally my favorite, uh, you know, principle from the, uh, the Nguza Saba, which is the seven principles, is Kuji Chakalia. Everyone say that, Kuji Chakalia. Kuji Chakalia. Yeah, so the definition of that, self-determination, to define ourselves, name ourselves, create for ourselves, and speak for ourselves. That's right. That principle is, as a parent, that's what I believe in, as a child growing up, that's how I was raised. This self-determination, and, and when you look at it, and I was a history teacher when I started teaching. When you look at the thread, that is the single, if you could pull out one thing that was constantly assaulted by white folks in black communities, was the self-determination. Mm-hmm. By far, that is the singular thread that crosses centuries, that crosses lifestyles, that crosses finances, crushing black self-determination anywhere it can be found. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you will see it now in the schools. Absolutely. And this is what I think is real. Yes, please, please clap for that. This is what I think is interesting for us. I brag about Minnesota a lot of times when we travel other places. We don't listen. They don't listen. (laughs) But here's what I usually brag about. Like, we are one of the rare communities in the United States that has charter schools that are culturally affirming that come out of the cultures that, that they want to serve. So we have, the, you know, schools that serve Hmong and, and Afrocentric schools and schools that serve uh, Latino kids. Um, unlike a lot of places where you have these chain charter schools and they're kind of depersonalized to culture and whatnot. What, is, what escapes me is how we could have such something that we should be so proud of the birthplace of charter schools with schools that came out of the communities that they intend to serve and why we, we would assault that now after all of these years. Like, like I'm hearing whispers of a charter moratorium mm-hmm. in, Minnesota, in, in Minnesota, right? I literally don't understand how that makes any sense to anybody that you would cut off any avenue to any learning for any person in the state and feel good about yourself, right? And especially when there is a reason why a lot of these communities started schools in the first place. Like Bedote Academy, you had people that had been working with the district for a long period of time and it didn't work out necessarily for those. So how are you going to tell somebody after 400 years of genocide and and enslavement that we don't have a right to educate our children how we see fit? Excuse me, it's the one right that I think we should have and no one should ever challenge, right? Ever, anywhere, right? People say you are trying to privatize the system and I just wanna be real. First of all, it's not my system. It never was my system and it would take some real Stockholm syndrome for me to adopt this as my system. It never will be, right? So let's start with that part. The second part is, Privatizing isn't a threat. I have a problem when you publicize uh, something like education because there's nothing more private than the brain and the intellectual development of my children, right? This is the most precious thing. Dr. King said this, that that is the most precious thing we have as a people. Why would you turn that over to people you know hate you, 
Right? Absolutely. And, uh, wait, we, wait a minute. And Dr. King said that. Dr. King that, said this to two <laughs> black educators who visited him on a night before he went national, a winter, uh, winter night. Two of his congregants came to him, a black a woman and a black man, both teachers in a local high school. They asked him about this, and that is exactly what he said. I am for integration when it comes to public accommodations, for buses, and everything else. But when it comes to our public schools, we're dealing with the most precious thing that we have, which is the care and intellectual development of our children. Why would we ever turn that over to people who think so low of us? Do we feel as though time has changed to where now people think more of us? No. As they are shooting us in the streets, overtaxing us in the courts, sending us, to, sending us away for a longer period of times than we should for smaller crimes. Not this is the that. same state who hires the people who you think I should turn my kids over to every day. Right. right. And because you are dying from nostalgia about how it used to be and you love it and these are your people and you love these schools, good for you. As they say in the South, bless your heart. <laughs> it's not my story, right? right? And in Minnesota, we could live up to our liberal progressive values if we just let my people go. Right. Uh, can I just jump in real quick? Please. I think that one other aspect, just to piggyback off what Chris said, that's often overlooked is the fact that a lot of times when white people talk about integrated schools, it's really to make themselves feel good. Not that they actually are thinking about the best interests of black children, right? So when you look at, you know, just like the people who clicked integrated schools will solve the achievement gap, a lot of times if you do a poll and say, do you live in a racially integrated neighborhood? The answer is no. Do you worship in a racially integrated church or other type of religious uh, facility? No. Is your workplace racially integrated? The answer is usually no. Hell, their so, Facebook pages ain't even integrated. Exactly. All right, all right, right? all right, so all right. But these are the individuals that are telling us what's in the best interest of our children, and they are not practicing that in their day-to-day -day lives, but you're forcing something on children that is going to be detrimental over the long haul, especially because you know our children, when they're five and six and they're being suspended at high rates, expelled out of school, placed in special education, labeled EBD and all these other things, we are setting them up for failure and we can't protect them if we don't really know what's going on. And then when parents go into schools and they go off, Right? When they figure out what's going on, we blame yeah, the parents crazy. and we call the police. Right. right? But those parents a lot of times are upset because of what's happening to their kids in school. So I feel like y'all being really negative right now. So let me rescue it. I am for integration in one way, right? I say we shut down all of the white schools of Edina and, and, and St. Louis Park. And we send all those white kids into Minneapolis to go to school with us. And then I'm for it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's Man, do it. No, you know, I'm, with gentrification I'm for it. And that's not going to solve the problem and, because uh, uh, most of your teaching core is still going to be white well, women. It, no, it's not going to solve the problem because they're going to burn them down before that happens. So that's, right. you're not going to get there. I'm not, go ahead, I'm, Ray. I'm, I'm not... Listen. Ray was over here squirming. Go ahead, brother. I no, feel here right. come the voice again, too. Nah, I'm not listening, man. Come on. <laughs> Go ahead, Ray. The voice is the voice. So, Charles, this question is for you. Okay. How does white fragility impact society's approach to school choice? I See, hate that term. It's the thing, and this is the thing, man. You, you know me well enough. I don't like centering white folks in my conversations. Like, like, think about it, right? Like, even when I'm going hard in on that stuff, right, I'm still centering you in the conversation. I ain't got no beef with white folks, right? All I'm saying is our greatness is not contingent on our proximity to whiteness. That's right. So when we center white fragility or what white folks can do, what we're secretly saying to these folks is it's an issue and you can save us. You got to save us. You got to save our people. So here's the thing. I will answer the question, though. To answer I wish the question, you would have just answered the question. No, because, because it's important. Because it's important and it's something that needs to be said in these spaces, right? Like, when you say we need to integrate those schools, you're saying that black kids can't learn unless they sit next to some white folks. That's what, I, that's what you, you're not saying it the other way around, right? Not you, you know, particularly. But when we talk about fragility, like... If, yeah, people going to be fragile if you continue to build them up and tell them that they're the solution for everything. Like, listen, man, this is a, when we talked about the percentage of white teachers here, right? You know what I'm saying? This is one of the only professions where you are not held accountable for how well you're treating black and brown people. That's right. 
if, if you fell in some white kids, you probably up out this piece. But if you fell in black kids, then it's the system. Then it's poverty. Then it's all these other things. Then it's the, it's parents. the parents. It's the parents. It's the parents. Mm -hmm. Kids can't learn in poverty. And Chris will remind you that the fastest learning period for black kids and black families was when? The 20 to 30 years post-slavery, right after emancipation, saw the greatest acquisition of literacy in the, in the history of the world. And those people didn't have money, right? Because they just they, came from being what? came out of poverty and trauma and, and racism and every bad condition you can imagine, and they acquired literacy at a faster rate during that period of time mm -hmm. than almost any other time in history. So let me build on that, right? But we, we cape for this system that has never served us because in the name of democracy, raise your hand if we gotta keep this stuff together for democracy. Again, I need some courage in the audience because I know some of you say it. I know you say that we have to uphold democracy. Well, you know what else happened under democracy? The enslavement oh. of black people. Enslavement, Happened in democracy. Underfunding of schools, mass incarceration. Oh, redlining. So wait a second. Redlining. So in places like People Oakland, voted for this stuff that the elected officials were voted in by people who believe in it. So, so let's just... Hey, so wait a we're second. not going to attack elected officials. Trump came officials. out of democracy. We're not, Absolutely. Right? We're not like, going to attack Trump. Like democracy brought... <laughs> well, that's true. We got a Trump. Hey, listen, man. All I'm saying so. is in places like <laughs> Chicago, in places like Oakland, in places like D.C., that used to be called chocolate cities, right? The redlining and the gentrification is so strong and such that even in the sections of those cities where you had voting power, it is all spread out and blocked out. What does that mean? White that means Trump. that we run, that means that we run lines, voting lines, straight through black neighborhoods to dilute their power around democracy. See, democracy can be manipulated just like anything else can be, right? So when you lean on those things and say, well, we gotta do this for democracy, we gotta do this for this, we gotta do this for that, what you really saying is, is that we're gonna make sure that the white folks here is taken care of because we got a thriving downtown. And but guess what that downtown needs? It needs cheap labor. It needs people that can't afford to live here. It needs people that can work for $14 an hour. There's nothing so wrong with $14 an hour. But nothing the, wrong with $14 the, But you understand what I'm saying. I don't know why you got a long cape on right now and coming to the rescue of white folks. They don't need you. I'm just saying. Stand up and yell at somebody. You going to jail. I'm Almost not yelling cursed. at anybody. So all I'm saying is, is that... Oh, that's this, what caping means. Like you wear a cape. Oh, my gosh. I just oh get it. I never... Sharif, all you are right, so So we, we are now transitioning <laughs> to the next question, and this is a question for Reef. Um, there's currently an assault on black teachers in Minnesota. And so, Reef, my question to you is, how important is it for black kids to see black teachers? Listen, there's, uh, you know, people talk about all kind of things. And I heard the doctor when he said, like, you know, there are certain things outside of academics. Right. To me, it's all included in academics. You know, whether it's the arts, the whole child, all of that is part of academics, like the academic approach for development of a child. And part of that for black children, because they're under constant assault, is a positive racial identity. Mm -hmm. Without a positive racial identity, it is extremely difficult for black children to learn, to thrive, to have the tools of protection living in a white supremacist environment. Absolutely. And as it goes from Minnesota, Pennsylvania, from California to Connecticut, okay, everywhere. Without that, you can be as literate as you want to be, and if you have a negative self-identity, it is not going to amount to much. What will actually happen is you'll become an oppressor right. to your own people. Mm -hmm. That's what happens when you're not directly, deeply tied back into your community. And so as educators, and I sent a clip to one of my friends uh, earlier, an educator in a system of oppression is either a liberator or an oppressor themselves. Mm -hmm. Overseer. Right? And so, and he talked about this idea of overseeing the system. So they don't feel good about themselves. And so then they grow up through a system. They're fed white supremacy. And white supremacy, if you remember, it's a smog. It's invisible sometimes. A lot of times you see the, the outcomes of it, but it's something you are constantly breathing. And just because you're black doesn't mean that you're not constantly breathing it. The images on TV, the words, the constant, the rhetoric from the White House, all the way down to any other house, right? Because then we have to remember, white supremacy isn't just an institutional thing. 
lot of that stuff gets reinforced in car rides home and at dining room tables and after soccer practice. Mm -hmm. And so part of all of this is making sure that the students have this window of mirrors because they're going to get plenty of windows. They're going to see white America even if their eyes are shut. Mm -hmm. They're going to see white America. Absolutely. But they need to see themselves as well. And that's why the importance of the person leading the classroom is vital. And interestingly enough, Pennsylvania and Minnesota, we have the same uh, ratio. 96% white teachers. 96%. And so what that means is people can say whatever they want. Education is political. And so when you have a, a, a system that's, that's responsible for teaching and informing and shaping the minds of children, black, white, and everything else, and it's coming from a particular ideological, ideological bent, that's going to inform how that child grows up, how that child sees themselves, and you, Minnesota, as Pennsylvania and everybody else, has to do much better at recruiting, supporting, retaining teachers of color, and particularly black teachers and same race teachers. The evidence is overwhelming. And we didn't need John Hopkins to do that. Grandparents have been saying that forever in our communities. I need my child to have a, a black teacher. Latinos are saying, I need my child to have a Latino teacher. Native Americans saying, hey, I, I need, we've been saying that. Finally, you know, one of your institutions is saying, hey, this might be kind of important. Yeah, it was important back in Brown versus Board when you fired them all too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right, it, it was always important. So was that can I just chime in real quick? I think that that's I part of the, the real work of okay <laughs> of anti-racism, right? So for folks who think that they're focused on anti-racism and they're skirting around and doing all these feel-good things, this is a key example of the type of work you ought to be doing. Going to the legislature worrying them day and night until they change the laws and the policies that are fueling white supremacy within our teaching core. Right? It's, of course, it's within our public education system, but it's also within our teaching core, where we focus more on protecting the status quo and the financial interests of white people, rather than what's in the best interests of our children. That, that's a huge point that and, you made and right I just want, Let me just add one thing. Having more black teachers... Benefits white kids. Thank you. You know what? One of the best ways for the, your children to grow up to be anti-racist do two things. Look at your home libraries and look at who's teaching your child. So, so based off of that, what, what, give me three recommendations that you have for white folks that they should have in their home libraries. Well, I'm talking about children's books. I mean, you can, I mean, I would say follow Nosekir, um, Griffin L., Dr. Nosekir Griffin L., he's one of my former students, went to South Africa, got his PhD, come back, and he actually produces, uh, you know, not producer. He basically lists tons of, of materials. But you can, I don't even have a recommendation because there's so many, even though it's only 7%. You know, your child is more likely to see a talking bear in your children's books than a black child protagonist. A talking bear, right? So that, like, that, those are things. And this is from my white friends who are progressive and think, I don't see color, or when I see color, everybody's equal. Yeah. Have, have you heard, like it's yeah they are lying they are. but <laughs> you know but when you when you there was a girl in New Jersey what's her name Malia Malia uh, I think she came she, she's a 10 11 year old child in New Jersey she started just collecting books of people with color who are the protagonists mm -hmm. and she said you know why because I got tired of reading about white boys and their dogs <laughs> right and so I want you to look at your classroom library, and just, uh, and just as our esteemed uh, 10th Black Hands uh, said, you know, this teaching profession is not, it's not supposed to be just for one group of folks. It ain't supposed to be that way, but it has ended up that way. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of the resist. Part of you saying, like, you're down, you're an advocate, agitate for that change. That's right. So. That's right. Definitely clap that up. Mm -hmm. All right, so through the eyes of white supremacy, black is always going to be wrong. So how do you work around the perceived wrongness of blackness? How, how do I work around the perceived wrongness of blackness? I just confront it head on and say, we are 
who God created us to be, whether you like it or not, whether you agree or not, it is what it is. And I think that as black people, we have to become more confident standing up to white supremacist ideology and recognize that it's everywhere. And there is nothing wrong with us, but it's something wrong with the system of white supremacy and its progeny, right? That we are dealing with on a daily basis. When we're looking at the issue of police shootings, if we had more of these cops who had black teachers, we would probably have fewer were police shootings of black men, right? Because they would again begin to see our humanity, even though it shouldn't take all of that. It's just the reality is that we are still dealing with unreconciled racial history in this country. We've never had a truth and reconciliation commission. But they gave you Obama for eight years. <laughs> anyway, we <laughs> reparations. Eight of years and killed my taxes. No, 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 no. We gave them Obama and they returned the favor with this fool. <laughs> Right. right? Yeah. Which means next Nothing time around, I'm voting for the craziest black man I can find anywhere. I'm going to write him right in there <laughs> because this is, that was the gift back to us for Obama. Let me say something that I think might be um, bothering me a little bit about this conversation, though, right now. Which is, so, so there's a couple of things. Every question got to do with white people? So, so that's, one of the, oh, okay. that's one of the things oh, it that, to me that I I'm think sorry. is important. One of the things is that uh, people of color and black people, especially in Minnesota but elsewhere, we're the only group of people who wake up every morning and turn our kids over to another race, right? And, and I don't think people understand the psychology of that, like what that means. Mm -hmm. Like I would like white people to try that for a year. Wake up every morning and turn your children over to another race entirely, in their entirety, and say, teach them, like educate them, whatever, right? So th th there, there is some, there is some like, like when I used to be a member of PETA, you know, they impressed upon me that we're the only species that drinks another species milk. I, I apply that to this, right? Like, like it, it, there is something weird about turning your children over to another people. But it is going to be that way for the foreseeable future. Right? It's going to be that. So, so it's not like we could break up right now. It's not like we can just break up and take our children away. So we are going to need to have some sort of negotiation with white people about the care of our children every day. And it needs to start in places like this churches where we say that each one of our kids is born with the unsurpassable worth granted to them by mighty God. And I need you to believe that. I need you to believe that. I need to believe that because it has to start from there as a basis. But then let's get out of the fuzzy stuff for a second because at the end of the day, education is about teaching and learning. And we've been focusing just a little bit on the teaching part and almost none on the learning part, right? And, and the problem with a lot of these discussions is it's a lot about sociological interventions in place of educational interventions, right? Teaching is a science. We are, t we are doing all of it wrong, mm. right? And it's not just affecting black kids, for instance. The way that we teach reading, the way that we teach math, it is backwards for white kids a lot of the times, but it's doubly backwards for us, right? That that whole thing about when America gets a cold, we get the flu. Well, if you are teaching yourselves reading the wrong way, and then you are teaching us through your culturally incompetent lens reading to us the wrong way, we gonna catch the flu, the educational flu, and we don't need it, right? There is no social change that is going to be predicated on illiteracy. Mm. There's nothing I, that's going to happen in this United States me, if we don't get the teaching part right, the learning part right, the classroom right. Our legislators, our activists, everybody are talking about everything under the sun except for teaching and learning, the quality of the education our kids are getting. Just, that's got to change. I want to tag in on that, right? Y'all can clap for him, man. Chris is brilliant. Go ahead. Clap it up for that brother. I like it when you say that. <laughs> you are, man. I, but I, I want to, let me tag in on that, right? And listen, man, it, this is not us having a problem with white, I don't have a problem with white folks, right? You said that three times. <laughs> Which means you fourth. have a problem with I'ma white say, folks. I'm going to say it a fourth, right? Because I'm asking for some, a little bit of courage from the crowd too, right? Like, let's have, if we're going to have this you, conversation. You asked for that private. twice too. Can and you please stop you. interrupting me? What are you doing? <laughs> Cut his mic. <laughs> so we do this all the time. I love Ray. But the point that I think people are trying to drive home is, is if our collective success is contingent on a racist system no longer being racist, we cannot win that game. We can't play that game. If I got to center you in everything that we do, then that's just exhausting, right? So let's look at the flip of what Chris is saying. Let's look at the crack epidemic and the opioid epidemic, right? In crack, everybody was a criminal. We changed laws. We had to lock those people up. 
in the opioid crisis, we found some sympathy. Mm-hmm. We found empathy because we because the the lawmakers had somebody that was on opioids, right? right. It's the same thing with education. Now, let me ask you all something. What if 96% of your teachers was black? What if 96% of your teachers was black? And and I'm asking this to the white folks, and I want you to be honest. Again, let's have some courage in this crowd. And they were sending your kids home where only three out of 10 white kids could read. Would you stand for that? Would you be screaming integration? Would you be upset when some white folks said, check this out, our kids learn a different type of way and we need to actually teach them some stuff. When that school started thriving, not just existing, but thriving and eight out of 10 of those kids were reading and then the black folks shut it down, how would you feel? Mm-hmm. Would you feel like it was a setup? Would you feel like, oh my God, everything is the system fault, the system fault, the system fault, but when it's black people or brown people or somebody else making some headway, the system learn how to get those people out really quick, right? And if you can't see that, if you can't have that conversation, if you can't be honest and say, there's no way in the world, because we in church, there's no way in the world that I would allow that, right? Then you got to allow and afford black and brown people the same level of agency that you want for yourself and your family. So, so the same way that you respect this church is the same way I want you to respect the podcast henceforth. Oh, my God. Because... <laughs> It's not the type of language that I hear on the podcast coming from. It's not. It's, it's, I grew up in the church, man. I, you know, the pastor right there, man. I can't. <laughs> Look, I, I want to add something to this idea of, you know, a, a particular problem are the, are the folks who, I don't even want to say smarter, who think they're smarter, right? Like, you know, Chris a lot of times talk about the educated Negroes are killing us. But there's another group of intellectuals that are killing us. And it's, you know, you know often you find them in, the, in this, uh, you know, this privileged places, whether the academia or in the schools or in the boards, like whatever it is, right? And so there was, a, I, had, I had a former student, Lindsay, a former teacher, Lindsay Turk, and we were talking about this idea of teaching and the, and the science of teaching. Their professor asked 40 graduate students, what's more important for you to teach your middle and high school students, deconstructing capitalism or learning how to read? Now, mind you, this is Philadelphia vast majority of students are, are black and Latino. 38 out of the 40 said teaching them how to deconstruct capitalism is the most important thing. Wow. Was the study done? You, Penn? <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, University of Pennsylvania. Two. How did I know that? Because <laughs> I told him earlier. He, <laughs> he told two, me nothing. Two, two out of the ten thought really, th- and it just shows you like the mindset about, and these are educators. These are people who are already in education who are getting their masters. Mm-hmm. This is their mindset about black students, about their literacy, about their brains. That, oh yeah, we're going to teach you how to do this and that, that, that. Literacy, nah, that's not, that's not that important. That, so that was just in one graduate school. And if you think that doesn't permeate throughout our schools in this state and every other state, then you, I got a bridge to sell you. It is absolutely pervasive. When we talk about the belief gap, it comes out in little areas like that. Right, it comes out of that mindset. And so we have to interrogate everybody. You know, this idea of just trusting whoever's inside, whoever's leading the classroom, that's inappropriate. It's oppressive. It is not built for success. And remember, people say like, oh, the system is broken. The system is not broken. It is designed to do exactly what it's doing. I agree. It was built, if, if you think hundreds of years ago, who was educated well? White, affluent folks who could hire individual tutors. Mm-hmm. Today, who's educated well? Same. White, affluent folks who can go to private school and still on top of that, still have to hire tutors. Right. Nothing has changed. But for some reason, people just get all in their feelings and think like, red, white, and blue, I love you, and everything's better. No, We're not talking th- anti-American here. Listen, <laughs> listen the whole... The whole I, I'll go there, but I ain't going there today. You see my shirt, right? And so <laughs> on that video, someone talked about that uh, they don't even want to release the data. I wanted to ask about that. I, I looked at the report cards today with uh, the data person for Ed Allies, and it's nearly impossible to find 
the data on a report card. It's like you have to have a trained eye in order to go in. And that's the system's way of telling you that, hey, we don't want you to see the failures that are happening in Minnesota. But here's the thing. If you're on the outside looking in, you can always find the data. So even though they're hiding it in a report card, you could still find it. And you know what? trying to hide it. We have a state report card, so you can look and you can find it, right? But it's becoming less and less clear on how students are doing because we're starting to mix, we're t- starting to muddy the water a little bit. So, so, so Daniel's standing in the back, like he said something years ago that I bring up all the time. He's probably heard me say this like 8 million times. He was in a meeting once where he said, you know, if I could just convince people that there's a problem, um, this would be a lot easier, right? And Minnesota is doing what you do when you have kind of like a spouse who or, or a family member We're not doing who has, has issues and you We're kind of not step around that. it all the time. Um, we are, are clouding the data. We're making it less easy to understand. We're adding in new factors like how many hugs you got rather than whether you can read or not, right? Like we're doing all kinds of weird stuff. We're a hug state? Stuff. We are a hug state from a distance. We're Lutheran too sometimes. So, so we kind of like, you know, hugs are like this a little bit, you know. Um, but but, but um, like, like what's important about this to me is we don't have the fundamental belief that our kids can pass the tests. We don't have the fundamental beliefs that our kids, we say that we do, but we don't really believe. So we, we invent all kinds of fancy ways of getting around it. It's the poverty, it's the parents, it's the, the, the programs, it's the lack, the lack, the lack, the deficits. We awfulize the kids to death. They're all, all their parents are like, you know, uh, in traumatic situations, blah, blah. But the more that we talk, the more that you understand that when you get to the end of that, what you have just said is you don't really believe that the kids can learn. And until we get over that, that part, there is no future for Minnesota, and there's no future of education, educating kids of color in Minnesota until we could get just past that part. So you, you talked about education being the flu. So here's what I'm going to say. No, I'm not saying education is the flu because we could all catch it then. Right. right. And right now, we can't even catch education right now, so it's not the flu. It's running from us, bro. Okay. It's, not, it's not coming to us. But if we were using the analogy of education being the flu, black parents are the flu shots teaching them how to advocate, teaching them how to go out and and, mm-hmm. and be that mama bear for their kids. Yeah. That's what we need to be I doing. want Nakima to talk about this part too because I'm going to put something in the room that's probably like un- unpleasant and unkind. But I'm, I, you know, I have to say but Why are you putting it on the room? Because sometimes God moves you to make just just to say what you got. And we are in a place of put the it Lord. there, right? And Nakima is my person who allows me to do that all the time. So... If you are a black person or a brown person and you are looking to ascend in any office in Minnesota, there's a certain set of rules you have to play by. There's a certain person you have to be as a Negro in Minnesota, right? And, and I'm a former Negro in Minnesota who was elected, so I get to say this now because I don't give a damn about being elected to anything else ever again. You're in a church. Right? God, God, God is the one who damns people, bro. <laughs> like, 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 God kind of invented damning. He's like, he's God's pretty good at the it. inventor of the. He's really good at it. Right? Have you read Leviticus? <laughs> I have read Leviticus. I mean, come on, Deuteronomy. So, no, go ahead, Chris. <laughs> so, um, so you have to like, like, if you get to any level here of prominence, it means that you probably have made some cultural compromises to get there. Because that's what it takes. You got to be a Manchurian Negro to make it in Minnesota to a place, right? So there is no help for us coming because you are beholden to white people if you are ascending into places of power here. I saw it as a school board member in the type of phone calls that I would get that were very explicit about either I make this decision or that decision if I knew what was good for me coming from higher up elected white people, right? Mm -hmm. And and if I were to really, if we were to have a different session here, I would love to put it all out on the line sometimes. But let's just suffice to say, let's just suffice to say this state is hella racist when it comes to the political power and how it doles out political power. And black people don't have any educated Negroes fighting for them right now in this state. I'm sorry. And brown people don't either. And, and that's why I said this is unkind, right? But it's not unkind because I'm intending to be unkind. The reality is unkind, right? Huge difference. It's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. And the reality is I would like to see us be better than this. I'm not saying this without hope that we can be. I'm saying it in the hope, especially in a house of God, that we do better. In the house of God and in a progressive Minnesota. 
somewhat progressive. I think we're actually paleo-liberal in, in Minnesota. I don't think we're progressive, right? Explain. I travel to some places that are, are actually progressive for real, mm -hmm. right? And, and like, we don't really have goat yoga, I don't think. Do we? I, I don't know. We do? It's a no. Ooh. Yeah, just, just, Ooh, you guys are you guys are progressive. Just to pick up piggyback. Okay, did you finish so, your point? I did. Go ahead. So just to piggyback off of what Chris is saying, I think we do have some some educated Negroes. Hello. I said and others as well. Well, you said educated Negroes fighting for our people, but there are some folks yeah. who are educated, who are taken to the streets, who are shutting things down, who are demanding justice, and many of whom are actually running for office right now. Right? We have an unprecedented number of African Americans in particular mm -hmm. who are running for office here, and some of whom have won their seats, and hopefully on Tuesday, some of whom will win their seats. So please remember to get out and vote. So there, I, I have seen a shift since I moved here in 2003 in terms of more of us being willing to speak up and take calculated risks, um, speak truth to power, and right. suffer the consequences, right? So when I first got here, I think that people, you know, I was a law professor at the time in a Catholic, you know, conservative environment, and I think that I was seen as a very safe person, Right. And so that afforded me certain doors being open. And I think that things really began to shift after I went to Ferguson, saw what was happening there, took to the streets here. I was no longer considered to be safe. Right. But at the same time, when I looked historically at Harriet Tubman, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, Malcolm X, people who have come before us and who were not safe, and I saw what they were able to do. I'm like, to help. Oops. Sorry, God. To heck with being safe. God knows hell, too. Right? <laughs> um, that this is really about, at the end of the day, putting it on the line for justice for our people. Because what is the point of staying safe and having people just be comfortable around you if things stay the same for your people, right? If people, if white people continue to have their foot, up, their feet on our necks, where we cannot breathe, where we're struggling to survive, where our children are being oppressed in school and treated like they're subhuman, why should I care about walking in a room and people seeing me as safe? I'd rather them see me as a dangerous Negro at the end of the day because they know that I'm going to do things by any means necessary to get justice for my people, right? Now, I'm a nonviolent person, but at the same time, I will shut something down, right? And sometimes it takes that. It takes disruption, right, in order for people to actually wake up and see what's happening and to care and to not be able to sleep at night in their big, comfortable homes, but to worry about what's going to happen next if I don't stand up and speak up and do something about the things that are going on. That's what needs to happen. We need a major shift. I, we 100% agree with you. All right, so before we take questions from the audience, because we're going to do that, we're going to allow you guys to ask us some questions. We're going to close our thoughts. So we'll start, we'll start with uh, Sharif. Sharif, closing thoughts. Oh, man. So I, I think two things. One, um, I actually believe in integration. Um, I believe in integrating the financial systems that are hoarded by um, white folks. <laughs> I believe in integrating the jobs that black and brown folks can't get at equitable uh, measures. I believe in integrating access to all the lifestyles that folks have wanted but couldn't simply because of how God created them. That's one. Two, I am, I am constantly talking about, one, there's no such thing as white fragility. Y'all about as fragile as any other human being on the planet. Right. Right, and I get nervous. My mother always says, like, be very specific with terms because even uh, things like white supremacy and white fragility sends an unconscious message that can impact for folks that actually think they are fragile or that they are supreme. And so we have to be really clear about our messages. Like, racism and bigotry, let's just call it that. It's not a thing about supremacy. You know, if you're not, if you're not supreme, if that means you're, if you're saying supremacy, that means you're putting yourself on the, the plane of God. And usually when we, th we look at people who think they're God, we say they're delusional. So maybe we should say, you know, uh, 
the white Stop delusion. Stop it. <laughs> Instead of white supremacy. We are not going to invent new terms tonight. I, I think I, think I want to. We're not doing this. I think I want to. The, the second thing I would, I would say, you know, and a, a couple of ways came up, whether it's making sure that your home, school, public neighborhood libraries are, are more reflective and can actually educate your children, um, who the teachers are, the windows and mirrors in front of the classrooms, uh, who's being elected, right? And so stop being an ally. Allies don't need to take risk. They can still sip with their pinky fingers up. They can relax. They can never, they don't have to actually be in the fight. We need co-conspirators. We need agitators. We actually need like, you know, uh, white panthers of, of yesteryear, <laughs> right? We need, we need something different from you all. Like, like stop, if you're feeling comfortable, then look at yourself in the mirror and say, I am not advancing this idea of liberation for my brothers and sisters. Mm. That's, it. That's, that's it. So you're saying Ed Panthers? Yeah. <laughs> Ed Panthers. No, he said, he said white panthers. Right. He said white panthers. He said white panthers. I'm just trying to clean it up. <laughs> All right. Charles. Don't clean up my words, bro. Um, Charles. I mean, I, I guess I'll double click a little bit on what you said. I mean, I agree with most of it. I just, wait. I'm what? not. Well, let me finish. What's y'all just rude? Double click. What are we doing here, bro? <laughs> Is he annoying y'all yet? I'm just curious. So um, he says sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, no, I said I said I wanted to like. I, I agree with like I think 95% of it. I just don't go in expecting people whose responsibility it ain't to love us to actually love us. I don't, I don't, I think that people look out for themselves. I think they look out for their own race. I think that even though our conversations always sitting around white folks, I don't think they sitting at home having conversations about you. What I would say is if you don't want to be a co-conspirator or an ally, just get out the way. Like just don't be in the, in the way of the progress happening, right? right? I think the other thing though, I wrote a whole book on this, right? Like around how black kids that grew up impacted by the crack epidemic actually navigate to become doctors. And nowhere in there was it about proximity to whiteness, right? What the three things that all of those people had in common is, what, is that them and their parents sought out a quality education and they did it in front of their children, which is really important. Two, all of those kids, their parents built up a strong self-identity so they knew who they were regardless and despite whatever was going on. And then three, it was proximity to success by other black people. It was seeing other black people be successful. It was being able to talk to black lawyers. It was being able to talk to black educators. So as a parent, I just wanna leave, I wanna talk to my people right now. The advice that I'm gonna give you is, one, you are the expert on your child and you hold a lot of power in that. And when you don't send your child to school, like they, that, that hurts their pockets. What I am saying, is don't give up your power of being an expert on your kid. And I don't care if you graduated in the third grade or got a doctorate degree. That's your child. I think secondly, and finally, I would say fight for the academic excellence in front of your child. That little boy that was in that video with his mom, he is going to be statistically changed. His chances of being academically successful have statistically risen because his mother has brought him in to this important conver conversation around education. So those are two of the strongest things that you can do, and don't none of them got nothing to do with you begging other people to love you. Miss Levy. So I'll just say, um, so I agree with most of what Sharif said, but I do believe... Well, you have a reaction when she said the same thing. She's good people. <laughs> white supremacy is a real system, right? I'm definitely not saying white people are supreme. White people are equal. But the system of white supremacy is real, and white supremacist ideology is real. Right, we're we're still living in the residue, right, of this system that um, was manifested and continues to perpetuate and permeate all of our systems that exist here in this country. I also think, at the end of the day, we do have to specifically focus on what's happening with children of color and black children within our public school system. We have to hold systems accountable. We also have to realize that the public school system is not an island unto itself. A lot of these other social issues that we talk about have a direct impact on what's happening in our education system, as well as how the people who are teaching our children perceive our children, and whether they see them as human at the end of the day. And so if you're sending your child to a school for the black people in the room and your children are not being supported, they're being kicked out of class, they're being told that they're not academically um, adequate in terms of their performance, then I would recommend going and trying to advocate first. And then after that, 
finding them a different school or homeschooling them, right? Because you are your child's best teacher at the end of the day, and your child does not deserve to be treated like they are less than human because we have a system that is supposed to be set up to educate them that's actually not doing it. So please stand up, speak up, fight the power, and don't give up. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Chris. So I'll just say quickly, um, everything else that has been said, I think, is profound. So I don't have anything profound to say. I'll just say this. Uh, um, Sharif and I were talking earlier today about Adam Clayton Powell's quote that violence is, Julian Bond, I'm sorry, is, is um, violence is, is graduating after 12 years in school with a six years of education. Is that right? Um, so I would just like to add to that. Educational violence, to me, is two-thirds of your kids not being able to read in a wealthy state. Educational violence to me is crowding kids into schools and classrooms where you know they have the lowest rated teachers in your city or in your district. Educational violence to me is when you are constantly awfulizing the children to death because you're trying to mask over the fact that you don't know how to teach them, right? Um, educational violence to me is when people of color finally find safe harbor in cultural affirming uh, um, schools and you go to try to close them or stop them from growing. Um, educational violence to me is when you have an entire political apparatus that is in service of the public workers more than it's in service of children. I am asking you all to be anti-violent and to practice anti-violence in your politics. I am not asking you to break with long-standing progressive traditions and allies and friends that you have. I'm just asking you not to do violence to people who have a 400-year suffering going on, and it continues in very wealthy places like Minnesota today. Absolutely. So I'm going to say something, and it's probably going to be unpopular, and I'm okay with that as probably one of the few Republicans in the room, I'm going to say that Al Franken should still be a senator. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Why? Right. Why? Just, I like just, Al let, just let Why? it go. Just let it in. I like Al just Franken. Let it, just let it in. Why? Questions, questions from the audience. <laughs> Why? After everything, just, we, I don't know why he does. We that. didn't solve like and we, he, listen. We let him host today. We gave him a mic. I and let him we in. replace him <laughs> with Nakima. Oh my God! All right, question. I, I am not in the middle of all that. You're <laughs> <laughs> hilarious. That brother got a. There we go. Can we clap it up for this first brother that got a question, please? Y'all got white people scared to ask questions. Uh, oh well. Hello? Okay. Uh, not to oversimplify things, but the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step. Mm -hmm. what, what we've talked about a lot tonight, and every bit of it resonates with me, like it just, just speaks to my soul. What's the first step? Like, what's the first thing that a parent can do, that we can do as a community? That's all I want to know. Yes, sir. Great question. I, I think Charles has a good answer for this, because you wrote kind of this piece on things that black parents should ask. My, my very simple one is just to ask one very simple question to your school, which is, you know, is my child on grade level, right? Um, it's a powerful question because everything that comes after that question is either right or wrong. So um, that's mine, but you. No, I mean, that, was, that is wrapped up into that. So basically is the way in which you're active, right? It's like talking to those teachers, building a rapport, and also asking, like, what's my child's reading level? What's your discipline level? Hey, let's be partners around the education of my child. And just knowing in the back of your head that at the end of the day, that's your child. And ultimately, you got to be the person that, you got to be the quarterback of your team, even if you feel inadequate. Even if you feel like you can't make that throw, you got to stay in that game. And you got to ask for help when you need it. But, I mean, I think it's showing up, and when something's wrong, it's showing out. Yeah. Thank you, Charles. All right, last question, because we are getting <laughs> with time. He's not Phil Donahue. I just said, He's I don't even not. have a question. I have a statement. Um, as Let him make the statement, right? I mean, a statement. Let him ask, say a statement. No, I mean, as a, so I'm a, I've been an educator for 15 years. Um, and every time I Can come to Can we clap it up for that, brother? You said 15 years, man. Educator. Every time I come to panels like this, I think it's really important to offer a call to action. Um, 
there's not a ton of us, black males, uh, black folks in general, working in public schools, and I think we need support. I think students need support. And so I always try to challenge the people that are here to find a way to get involved in the schools. Uh, with the students and find a way to support those like myself and, and others who are doing this very hard, difficult work. It's hard to go in day after day and know what you're fighting against and continue to, to wage that battle, especially without getting that additional support from outside of the school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Clap it up for that statement. To add on to that statement, brother, and first of all, you know, I appreciate you. And I was just say, you know, it's important that you all, and you may already be doing this, but uh, create affinity spaces for the black educators. And don't just include yourself. Make sure you reach down to the college level, see who's major in education, see who's interested in becoming educators, and rally around them as well, and create that space for this pathway to lead classrooms. But I want to add on to that too, though. And I mean, I know we gave... I gave advice to black folks. For the white folks, if you want to move beyond They didn't ask you for your advice. If you want to move beyond allyship and move into being a co-conspirator, we ask that you tell the truth. When somebody like that is standing up and you don't have that context, tell, stand up and tell the truth and say, if these were the numbers for my kids, I wouldn't want my kids here. Stand up and say, look, these folks have found something that works for them. We need to support them. It is not getting in their way is really, really powerful, right? Like, you have a lot of power as a white person in those type of spaces. It's being honest and saying, I send my kid to a private school or I move my kid because I can or I bought this house in this neighborhood because I can do that and I know that everybody can't do that. Like, you can raise your voice if you really want to. Now it's on you. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, the, absolutely last statement. So I was going to say, through the Racial Justice Network, we have been training white allies and accomplices to go into Minneapolis public schools on school board nights and actually get on the microphone and talk specifically about what needs to happen for black and brown children and calling out some of these racist practices. The other thing I want to do, can we just take a moment to acknowledge the education abolitionists in the room, particularly African-Americans and other people of color who stand up and every day who train parents, who go into the schools, who advocate, because there are some of you in this room. So can you stand so people know who you are? You've been out here doing this work. You deserve to be acknowledged because this is difficult work that goes unappreciated. So thank you guys for all of your work in our community. Thank you, Ed, thank allies, you. eight black hands, we're out. Thank you. You have been listening to the Eight Black Hands podcast with Ankrum, Cole, El Mecki, and Stewart. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at 8BlackHands1. Thank you for listening.